Hey everybody, this is Stephen Davis and you are listening to MetaMyth and Movies where we discuss meta-narrative and mythology in movies, TV shows, comic books and other forms of media entertainment. Um, so today, as you guys know from the last episode, I am currently doing a Marvel Cinematic Movie Marathon, uh, specifically sticking to the movies as if I include the TV shows. My goodness, how long is it going to take? to go through everything i mean you're talking about four seasons of agents of shield two seasons of of um, agent carter two seasons of daredevil jessica jones uh luke cage and iron fist it would just be an insane amount of stuff to go through um as well as the marvel one shots i may watch the marvel one shots i have watched the consultant because it uh, connects with the movies i want to talk about so today i am going to be talking about the first three movies out of the marvel cinematic universe because those are the three that i've watched so far those being iron man the incredible hulk and iron man 2 so stay tuned today and i will be delving into some of my thoughts regarding the movies Hey, 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 guys, this is Stephen Davis, and you are listening to Meta Myth and Movies, where we discuss meta narrative, mythology in movies, TV shows, and other forms of entertainment. So, today I wanted to do um, the first part of my Marvel Cinematic Universe movie marathon analysis. Um, and today I didn't really want to go into the um, ins and outs i think of the meta narrative that i think is behind everything because i don't think that starts to really come out until the movie thor comes in um with the first three movies in the marvel cinematic universe it seems that you know they're still trying to find their feet quite a bit and i think they're still trying to grasp the tone of everything and i think that becomes most prevalent in the incredible hulk so so far, I've watched uh, Iron Man, first Iron Man movie, which was released in May 2nd, 2008, followed shortly by The Incredible Hulk in on June 13th, 2008. So it's been almost 10 years since these movies came out. And then that was followed in 2010 by Iron Man 2. And um, after this, I'm going to start watching um, the other half of Marvel Phase 1, which would be Thor, Captain America, the first Avenger, and culminating in Marvel's The Avengers. Um, but yeah, as I was saying, it, it, was, it was pretty clear from watching these first three movies that the you know Marvel Studios were still trying to find their feet at this point. Um, this is also prior to Disney uh, purchasing Marvel, uh, inheriting Marvel Studios. So these first couple of movies are still under Paramount and Universal. Um, but, you know, th those aren't really that interesting in terms of the stuff we want to talk about here. Um, but, yeah, definitely the tones of the movie. Um, you can tell that they are trying to keep things grounded in some sense of realism, which is, I guess, but, you know, by the time it came to Thor coming out, there was this question of um, how is Marvel going to be able to handle it? How are they going to be able to transition from... Uh, the Iron Man movies and the Incredible Hulk, which had this far more grounded feel to them, to Thor, which is now launching into outer space and really launching more into the area of mythology. The first, you know, three movies are far more, I guess, around science, biology and technology. 
um, which is interesting in and of itself. I mean, definitely some transhumanism in there. But like I said, I'm probably going to wait until actually having watched all of the Marvel Cinematic movies to really try and trace the meta-narrative threads that are running through the movie. So for now, this is going to be a bit more like Easter eggs, a bit more character analysis, um, and just other things that I found interesting watching the movies. So first off was Iron Man. I don't actually have any notes for The Incredible Hulk, um, but I do have I've have a few notes for Iron Man and Iron Man 2. And I guess the most fascinating thing about the Iron Man movies um, really is Iron Man himself, the character of Tony Stark. And just um, going back and watching these first few movies and then tracing the thread of his story um, throughout the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he definitely is the character who's probably had the most character development in the sense that he's gone through the most changes. You know, um, I would probably say second on that rung would be Thor, and then after that would probably be Captain America. The reason I'll put Thor first before Captain America is he's, you know, if there's anyone in the Marvel Cinematic Universe who's who's predominantly stable. It's Steve Rogers. He hasn't really shifted in terms of his character, his standards, his morals, his ethics. He's pretty much remained that fulcrum, you know, that, that anchor, that very steady part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He hasn't, you know, shifted allegiances or really shifted positions throughout the movies. He's remained very still. That doesn't mean he's boring. It just means that um, I guess in terms of character development, if you wanted to, if we looked at character development as a character working out their flaws and their flaws being redeemed, their character being redeemed, um, Steve Rogers doesn't really have the same character flaws that Tony Stark and Thor have. Therefore, there's going to be a lot less character development in, you know, in that sense. So when you compare this to um, Thor and Tony Stark, they have gone through a lot of, you know, uh, character development. One thing that they definitely shared in common at the beginning was arrogance. Um, but the reason I would then place Thor second to Tony Stark is his journey is a bit more um, wavy. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, so basically, Tony Stark has and he hasn't changed throughout the movie. So in Iron Man, he starts off as highly arrogant very self-absorbed um and by the time we reach um the avengers movies uh movie after the first avengers movie um the events in that movie seem to shake him up uh humble him um and obviously in iron man 3 he gives up being iron man temporarily bounces back again only to then make things worse tries to take responsibility and kind of I guess becomes almost a bad guy in the process um, and like kind of looking at that looking at his journey throughout the movies it kind of leaves me a, 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 with the question in terms of the upcoming Avengers Infinity War and the untitled fourth Avengers movie um, will Infinity War redeem him I wonder um, because if you look in um, the second Avengers movie Age of Ultron um, he definitely, in, in in many senses of the word, is kind of the, the villain of the piece alongside Ultron because he is responsible, um, you know, for all this craziness that happens. And then Civil War is him trying to make amends, but 
you know, kind of in the process still coming off as kind of villainous. And I guess be, because you do look at, you know, Steve Rogers and obviously it's, you know, Civil War is a Captain America movie. So he is the hero of the piece and Tony becomes the villain of the piece. So, you know, it's, it's this question of will Infinity War redeem him? I think Spider-Man Homecoming has definitely gone some ways towards that. Um, but there are still some things that you can pick out about his character that make you wonder. Um, and I feel like the central question that haunts him throughout all of the movies, pr primarily coming, you know, beginning in Iron Man 1 is, you know, why didn't you do better? So, you know, when he is uh, escaping from his captivity in the first Iron Man movie um, and the character Jensen you know, uh, tells him, you know, like, this is your legacy, you know, all, all these weapons that have fallen into the wrong hands and have inspired other people to go and, you know, either gather the weapons or make weapons, um, you know, that is his legacy. Like, his actions produce either war, strife or more weapons. And, you know, Jensen tells him that this is his legacy, but in his dying breath, Tell, you know, basically tells Tony, you ha you have a second chance, don't waste it. And I feel like as a result of that, the question that now haunts him throughout all of the Marvel movies is, why didn't you do better? Or, you know, you have to do better, you have to do better. Um, he's trying to leave a good legacy, but the question is, is he succeeding? Um, and, you know, he's still, you know, Tracing his journey from Iron Man through to Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, he's still responsible, whether directly or indirectly, for warmongering. And that's something that Obadiah Stane, uh, the villain in Iron Man 1, says to him. He says, Tony, we're warmongers, you know, like we make weapons, we produce weapons, you know, and... Obviously, what begins in the first Iron Man movie is Stony is Stony is Tony trying to move away from making weapons and um, making things to make you know life better. To, um, for lack of a better word, he is trying to become an agent of redemption for the world. Um, but it seems that rather than doing that, he progressively becomes almost a central villain of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and the other kind of question I had was, is, you know, is he getting more reckless as he gets older, you know, coming up to Spider-Man Homecoming and he's now involving a, a school kid? Um, and it also made me think it's a shame that he didn't actually make Bucky a teenage psychic in the Captain America movies, because that would have been an, you know, an interesting point of contention between Tony and Steve Rogers in the sense that had Bucky been a te teenager and Cap had taken him to World War Two, and, you know, just as it is in the comics, he had seemingly been killed uh, trying to assist Cap in World War Two. Um, it would have been an interesting dynamic to then bring that to the modern day. And here's Tony Stark involving a teenager in a war. Um, I think that would have been some great character development between um between Steve Rogers and Tony Stark, but you know, never mind. Like we got the Winter Soldier, and Bucky was a really cool character in Captain America. So I'm not really, you know, I'm not really that fussed. Um, so those were really, you know, my thoughts around Iron Man One. Not so much about the movie itself, but just more so looking at Tony Stark in that movie, and then looking at where he is by the time we Spider-Man: Homecoming, and where he will probably be in. Uh, Avengers Infinity War 
and just it, you know it's just really interesting to watch the journey of his character um and hopefully as we continue going on in in you know in, in watching the movies we'll be able to draw out a bit more of um these interesting characteristics of tony stark um now the next movie that i watched was the incredible hulk starring edward norton edward norton um and you know what? I know people don't like this movie, but I actually, I, I still like The Incredible Hulk. Um, and I think it's because me being a movie head and, you know, having this teenage dream, you know, my dream as as a in my late teens was to become a filmmaker. And so I'd spend a lot of time before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, got off thinking, man, you know, if I had a chance to make a movie, how to make it? And I felt that the tone of The Incredible Hulk was definitely what I would have gone for um, as, as a contrast to uh, Ang Lee's Hulk movie. Um, and you know what I also love? I love the fact that they brought back William Hurt for Captain America Civil War because I kind of, the question that I'd had before that movie was, are they going to subtly try and push the Incredible Hulk movie out of the canon? So I was so glad that they brought William Hurt back because then it solidified the fact that, okay, they are still counting the Incredible Hulk as part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're not trying to discount it because it was kind of the movie that didn't do as well as all of the others. Um, and obviously there were, you know, there were other references to it. So, you know, in uh, the Avengers, uh, Bruce Banner making the comment that the last time he was in New York, he kind of broke Harlem. Um, that's obviously a reference to the climactic battle scene between the Hulk and the Abomination. Um, and also in the, in the same movie, in the Avengers, where Bruce Banner says that he, you know, there was a point where he got low and he tried to kill himself. And that's, that actually comes from a deleted scene of the Incredible Hulk Blu-ray where you see Bruce Banner go into the Arctic and he yeah, has a gun, puts it in his mouth, pulls the trigger and instead he hulks out. And actually, if you go back and watch that scene, you can actually see Captain America's frozen body in the ice, like buried in the ice. Um, like kind of like in the corner of the screen is kind of hard to see, but he's there. He's there buried in the ice, which was um, which was interesting. But you know what? This is really fascinating. As I was looking up some of the trivia for The Incredible Hulk and uh, Louis, Louis Leteria. Sorry if I said your name wrong, my friend. Um, the director of The Incredible Hulk, he originally wanted Mark Ruffalo for the role of Bruce Banner, which is crazy. Obviously, you know, Ruffalo went on to replace Edward Norton as Banner in the future in future Marvel Cinematic movies, but he was actually the original choice for Bruce Banner. So, as I was kind of watching the movie, I was trying to imagine um, what if this was Mark Ruffalo performing. You know, what if this was his performance rather than Edward Norton? And you know, I like Edward Norton as an actor, and I know that he did a lot of the uh, rewrites for the movie. Um, I know that a lot of the references to the Incredible Hulk TV show he wanted to put in there, the nods to um, Bill Bixby he wanted in there. So Edward Edward Norton was um, very much responsible for a lot of the narrative and the story and all of that. So, um, you know, I guess it's the trade-off, isn't it? Um, you, you, you kind of wonder, you know, part of me wonders what would the Marvel Cinematic Universe have been like if he'd continued in the role. But on the flip side, I wonder what would it have been like if we'd actually seen Mark Ruffalo in the role of Bruce Banner from this movie. You know what, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about some of the things that did bug me about the movie. Um, the main thing that bugs me is... Um, the fact that Tim Roth, even though he takes this super soldier serum, 
doesn't bulk up like Steve Rogers does. And I know they tried to basically use CGI to bulk him up, but it just it just looks really weird to see all this toned muscle on him, but in terms of his body mass, he hasn't actually got any bigger. Whereas Steve Rogers starts off as incredibly skinny and looks like hench by the time it's done. So that was kind of a bit of a bugbear. Um, but, you know, there's there's all these other things in the in the incredible hulk that are interesting as you know easter eggs or as threads for future movies so the fact that general ross was essentially trying to resurrect the original super soldier program that created steve rogers and that that is what's responsible for creating the hulk um and subsequently the abomination if you actually look carefully in the movie when he's taking out the serum it has the name dr reinstein um, now, if you watch, then go and watch Captain America, you may know, oh, but, you know, the guy there has a different name. Well, that's because in the comic books, Dr. Reinstein was his alias when he worked in the United States. So it seems that rather than there being some separate dude and they had to retcon it later on, it, it is meant to be the same guy. But it is, it is, you know, it does leave the question of how they actually got a hold of that, you know, of that sample, seeing as um, the lab was destroyed and the vial that had the serum in it was broken but it, it seems that they were basically trying to reproduce it you know trying to resurrect um the original super soldier serum and ultimately the fact that they didn't succeed is what you know how we end up with the hulk um there was one other thing that was really interesting about this movie um and it's a connection to spider-man homecoming so when bruce banner is returning to colby university to try and find his data um, he, you know, uses pizza to get past the security guard, and then he gives a slice of pizza to a student there who is credited in the credits as computer nerd. Now, this is uh, this character is played by a guy, an actor called Martin Starr, and he actually plays one of Peter Parker's high school teachers in the movie in Spider-Man: Homecoming. So, um, one thing about Marvel in, in Marvel Studios is they tend not to recast the same actors in different Marvel Cinematic Universe roles. They have broken this rule a few times, so, um, uh, forgive me, I forget the actress's name, but in um, Captain America Civil War, the lady who confronts Tony Stark about her son being killed is the same actress who plays the villain in Luke Cage, but obviously playing two completely different characters. And also the actress who plays Star-Lord's mother in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies is also a same, the same actress who appears... Um, in Captain America, the first Avenger, as someone who's trying to get Steve Rogers' autographs, actually the same lady. So they, they do make a few exceptions, but generally they, they seem to try and keep the same actors in the same roles, which would mean that um, Peter Parker's um, teacher in you know uh, Spider-Man Homecoming would have actually been studying at Colby University and would have encountered Bruce Banner, which is, you know, which is pretty cool. And because the movie is set pretty much um, a good 10 years or so before the events of Spider-Man Homecoming, it, you know, the, the chronology matches up. So that's, that's a cool little tidbit. I thought that was really, really neat that they did that. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it for The Incredible Hulk. The only other thing I guess I would mention is in terms of the chronology of the movies, um, what if you're a casual watcher of the movies, you may not actually realize that the events of the Incredible Hulk actually run parallel to Iron Man 2 and Thor. 
So all three of those movies basically run at the same time, which is why towards the end of Iron Man 2, when uh, Tony Stark's talking to Nick Fury, you can actually see the same news report of the Hulk going on his rampage at the university playing out on one of the screens. So that's basically, I guess, happening live. So, you know, Iron Man 2 ends about halfway through, you know, The Incredible Hulk. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say about The Incredible Hulk is the ending. So, so right at the ending where we see Bruce Banner in this wilderness and he's meditating, you hear his, you know, his heart rate increase and uh, his eyes turn green and he smiles. Now, before Avengers came out, there were many people who wondered whether this was a sign that he was actually going to be um, mind controlled by Loki. Because in the uh, Avengers comics, that's actually how the Avengers come together, is that Loki mind controls the Hulk and Iron Man, uh, Thor, Ant-Man and the Wasp have to join forces to stop the Hulk. So there was speculation whether that's what was actually going to happen. Um, but I guess instead it's maybe to do with what Bruce Banner tells, you know, tells the Avengers in, you know, in the movie that, yeah, that his secret to remaining calm is that he's always angry. Uh, I, to be honest, I still don't completely understand what that means and how that works, but by the end of Incredible Hulk, it seems pretty clear that he has learnt how to spontaneously become the Hulk without, you know, somewhat, you know, without outside influence. Um, and, you know, the reason that we're given in Avengers is that he's always angry. I guess he just kind of just, you know, cuts loose. I don't know. I don't really know how it works. Maybe they'll explain it in a future movie. Maybe they won't. But, you know what? Let's just hope that Marvel somehow manages to rest the rights from Universal so we can actually get a new Incredible Hulk movie. Because I would like to see an Incredible Hulk movie. Um, I would, you know, it's, it's cool what they're doing in terms of putting the Hulk in other movies, um, but it would be nice to actually have a solo movie again, and I'd be really interested to see how they would, you know, handle it in terms of the tone of Hulk's appearance in subsequent movies after The Incredible Hulk, because there was this kind of, uh, they were going for a kind of subtle, dark, horror, monster movie kind of vibe to it. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what they would do with future movies, seeing as the Hulk now is kind of not really this shadowy character, he's now very much out in the open, you know, so it would be interesting to see how they would handle that, obviously they're not going to do Planet Hulk because they're pretty much doing that in Thor Ragnarok, so uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be cool, it'd be interesting to see what they do. But on to Iron Man 2, which was released in 2010. Um, now, this movie is actually a special movie for me because this is the first movie that me and my wife ever watched. We weren't together at the time, but we were very good friends um, and a whole bunch of us went out to see Iron Man 2 for her birthday. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, you know, we have me and my wife share fond mem memories of Iron Man 2 because that's the first movie we ever watched. Uh, together before we were a couple but it's the first movie we saw together um but yeah now this is another movie which some people don't like and you know there's a lot of criticism of whiplash as a villain and, and um famously mickey rourke wasn't happy with uh i guess the amount of screen time he got or something like that because he put so much effort into the background research of the character and what have you you know which is yeah, well, you know, what can you do? Um, but you know, it's not a bad movie. You know, it's it's it's, it's still a good movie. Still has some good laughs in it, um, and you know, it's it's part of the building block of the rest of the MCU. So I'm not really that fussed about it. And it's, it's still a movie I watched several times. So it's not like a movie that's so bad that I wouldn't want to watch it again. Um, yeah. So 
Iron Man 2, Iron Man 2. One of the opening debates in this movie, um, which is significant for uh, Tony Stark's character development, is whether Iron Man is a weapon or not. Um, and Tony Stark insists that it isn't. Um, yet a consistent thread throughout the first movie through to this movie is that everyone else seems to view it as a weapon except Tony Stark. So Pepper Potts, you know, in Iron Man 1 is like, I thought you were done making weapons. Obadiah Stain tells Tony, yeah, you know, you, you tried to stop making weapons, but you've given us, you know, the best one. Um, obviously, Rhodey, um, Tony... Um, Tony Rhodes, you know. <laughs> Rhodes... Um, obviously sees it as a weapon as well and is wondering like you know why won't you let the u.s military have it senator stern in iron man 2 um the character of justin hammer sees it as a weapon the u.s military sees it as a weapon the public sees it as a weapon everyone is looking at iron man and is saying iron man is a weapon and the only person who denies it and see and seems not to see it is tony stark and i think this really connects back to um, what I was saying earlier about um, that whether he's whether directly or indirectly Tony Stark is responsible or still responsible for warmongering obviously his entire journey from the first uh, Iron Man movie through to the second is to try and move away from this legacy of warmongering of producing weapons of mass destruction um, yet despite the fact that he creates Iron Man to try and move away from it it actually seems to cause the opposite effect. And, and this is something that's brought out by the character of Vision in Captain America's Civil War, where he um, talks about a, 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 um, a causation or causality. I forget the, the exact term he uses, but he talks about ever since Tony revealed himself as Iron Man um, several years back, that there'd been this escalation and that their very the very power of the Avengers invites um, challenge and this challenge leads to conflict, which leads to catastrophe. And that seems to be, I guess, the underlying theme, I think, that that's running throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that everything that subsequently follows one way or another starts with Tony Stark creating the Iron Man armor uh, because it sets off this um, chain of events, which ultimately leads to Thanos. Um, and this is a point that's brought out by Thor in the Avengers movie where he says that the fact that humanity have started trying to get their hands on the Tesseract sends a message to the other galaxies and races throughout the, the universe that uh, humans are ready for a higher form of war. Um, so even though Tony has tried to um, move away from more warmongering, his actions are eventually step are uh, basically stepping stones that will lead to infinity war and i think the fact that war now is going to be in two the titles of two marvel movies and yet and you know you're looking at tony's journey and iron man very much is the poster child for the mcu um marvel seems to be working in this idea that yeah regardless Iron Man is responsible for a lot of this stuff because the events that lead up to Marvel, um, to Captain America, Civil War, these uh, Sokovia records, obviously they're called the Sokovia records based on what happened in Avengers Age of Ultron. And we know that Ultron was the product of Tony Stark. So um, whatever way you look at it, 
he is responsible for all of the madness that happens in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, so the other things that I found interesting, so you know, at the beginning of Iron Man 2, he's, uh, at, he's called to this Senate hearing, he's served. Um, and I think it was a really nice touch the way that they introduced Don Cheadle now taking over the role of Colonel Rhodes with just this one line. And I was just like, man, nice save Marvel. It's just the way they do it. Yeah, um, Tony walks up to him like, oh, I didn't expect to see you here. And his response is, it's me, I'm here, deal with it, let's move on. So it's just, you know, because it is jarring, visually jarring to move from, um, oh goodness, his name's gone out of my mind, <laughs> to move away from Terrence Howard to John Don Cheadle. Terrence Howard, Howard, Howard um, obviously being a lighter skinned fellow, a bit younger than Don Cheadle, and then moving to Don Cheadle, who is the complete opposite end of the melanin, um, spectrum um, and a little bit older and yet they just sweep it away so quickly and so nicely yeah it's me I'm here deal with it let's move on and the movie just continues so nice safe Marvel is really really slick really well done and yeah this whole sequence really uh, produces some more ironies I mean there's just so much irony in the Iron Man movies um, that, that I'm finding when you watch, watch it back knowing what comes uh, later on down the line so the irony here is that even though Tony is resisting handing over the Iron Man armor to the government he basically does just that in, in Civil War like everything he's trying not to do in Iron Man 2 he ends up doing in Civil War and I guess you could say that that is a byproduct of his growth as a character in the sense that he does that because he realizes he does have to take more responsibility and he is accountable for his actions. So even though he is, um, whether directly or indirectly responsible for warmongering, it does seem that by the time we get to Captain America Civil War, he is actually realizing, you know what, I am responsible and I have to be accountable, which then obviously introduces an interesting question between you know him and Steve Rogers. And so who is right? Is, is Tony right? Or is Steve Rogers right? Um, and I think that will be an interesting question to look at in terms of worldview. Um, but yeah, moving on from that, um, one of the things that Tony says is, um, I'm not a joiner, but I'll consider Secretary of Defense if you amend the hours a little bit. And this is also highly ironic, considering that he ends up working alongside the Secretary of State. So um, as far as I know, I'm not an expert on the uh, US government, but as far as I know, the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State work closely together as part of Congress. So please forgive me if I'm wrong about that. Um, but yeah, obviously in, in um, Captain America Civil War, the Secretary of State is former General Thunderbolt Ross. Um, so yeah, it's just ironic that he, you know, even though he says I'm not a joiner, yada, 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 he, essentially does end up joining that branch of the government and does as as uh, Rhodey suggests fold Iron Man into the chain of command as it were um, other little tidbits that so this is just a fun Easter egg uh, Hammer Industries so the business run by the other sub villain Justin Hammer their logo is actually the city of Asgard so where Thor is from and obviously it's called Hammer Industries 
Thor wields a hammer called Molnir. So it's interesting how Marvel started to weave some of the mythology of the Marvel Cinematic Universe into other things that you see um, going on throughout it. So it, you know, it, it raises an interesting question of how did the city of Asgard become the logo for Hammer Industries? Maybe there's a subplot there somewhere that they'll return to. And I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule them out uh, revisiting it because they did revisit the Justin Hammer character in the uh, Marvel one-shot I think it came with um, the come with Civil War. I think it came with Civil War, um, which was uh, picking up a Ben Kingsley character from Iron Man Three, uh, Trevor Slattery, um, when he's in jail, and um, uh, you know that that whole little Marvel one shot that they did, and Justin Hammer as a cameo in that. So I wouldn't rule out them revisiting the character at some point in the future. Um, Another interesting point in terms of uh, Tony Stark's character development is during the same scene, he calls himself the United States nuclear deterrent. You know, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm your nuclear deterrent. Something which you know, he goes on to sarcastically tell Nick Fury in Avengers always works, you know, where Nick Fury says that they developed this, you know, warhead, um, you know, in case anyone else tried it, basically, and Tony Stark sarcastically quips, "Oh, nuclear deterrent," because that always works. And you know, Nick Fury's like, "Oh, remind me again how you, you know, how you got your fortune, how you made your fortune." So it's, it's ironic that here Tony's like, "Yeah, I'm a nuclear deterrent," but by the time we reach Avengers, he's like, "Yeah, nuclear deterrents don't work, guys." So yeah, it's, it's interesting just to note his transition of character again, of character growth from Iron Man one and two through to. Um, Avengers and I think um, one of the things that Ivan Vanko the villain Whiplash says to Tony Stark after he's apprehended is really interesting given what happens in Civil War is he speaks of Tony coming from a family of thieves and butchers and like uh, all evil men he's trying to rewrite his history whilst forgetting the lives that his family have destroyed and I thought that was an interesting point because that that is essentially what comes back to haunt him in in Civil War, where this um, lady confronts him because her son was killed in the events of um, Avengers: Age of Ultron. Whilst the Avengers were meant to be saving the world, um, you know, innocent civilians got killed in the process. And obviously, that is what leads to the villain in Civil War as well. Is you know, his family was killed as a result of what the Avengers did. Um, which ultimately was the fault of Tony Stark. So again, is this kind of, you know, Ivan Vanko basically spells out what Tony Stark is trying to do. He's trying, in his view, he's trying to rewrite his history whilst forgetting the lives that he's destroyed. And part of Tony's character development, again, as I said earlier, is becoming accountable, is actually taking responsibility for the fact that, you know what, my family have destroyed lives and we can't continue to do that and not be held accountable for it. So even though on the one hand, he's being kind of portrayed as this villain, he is in in many senses, he's a person looking for redemption. And Ivan Vanko in that sense becomes almost the voice of unforgiveness, you know, in, in the sense that, yeah, you can't, he sees trying to redeem yourself through your actions as 
you're re you're trying to rewrite your history. But obviously, Tony Stark wasn't aware of all of that family history. There's a lot he wasn't aware of. He didn't know that his father helped found Shield. He didn't know about Ivan Vanko. He didn't know that his parents were killed by the Winter Soldier. Like there's there's a lot of stuff he just didn't know about his past. Um, and so it isn't really that he's trying to rewrite history. He's actually trying to redeem himself. He's actually trying to res take responsibility for his past sins. Um, and Ivan Vanko essentially becomes his accuser, his Satan, you know, saying, nah, you, you can't forget what you've done before. You have to pay penance. You have to, you know, you, you actually have to balance the scales blood for blood. You have to die in order to balance things out. You can't just turn around and do good. Um, and then he goes on to say this whole thing of, you know, if you can make God bleed, people cease to believe in him, which is highly ironic because, you know, me being a Christian, um, you know, my, my whole belief system is based on the fact that God bled. Right. So very ironic, you know, people's belief is based on the fact that, yeah, you know, you know, the blood of Christ, as it were. Um, but that was a, a minor point. I just thought it was kind of, you know, kind of interesting. It's one of those throwaway comments that the villain made. Um onto more irony uh, from the movie i find it ironic in ironic man to that uh nick fury gets sent a stern in the end to present an award to tony which is something tony says at you know early on in the film like oh this guy should be giving me a medal so he eventually goes back and gets his own way but we learn in when in captain america winter soldier that senator stern is actually a member of hydra um, Hydra being the former Nazi organization that Captain America was fighting that we learn uh, infiltrates S.H.I.E.L.D. to the highest level and is trying to, you know, take over the world as it were. Um, so it makes you wonder the fact that the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. gets Senator Stern, who is a Hydra operative from the organization that has infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D., who was really pulling the strings there? Was Nick Fury pulling the strings or was Hydra pulling the strings? Which also raises the question of what was Hydra trying to do through Senator Stern throughout the whole of Iron Man 2? Because he was very much there. Is it that they were trying to fold Iron Man into the government and make him responsible? Or were they actually trying to take him out? Because in Captain America Civil War, we learned that um, Arnim Zola, one of the villains from Captain America, um, uh, the first Avenger, created this algorithm which could examine someone's life and patterns and determine whether they would actually be a threat to Hydra's um, uh, uh, goals. And, you know, they, they um, the character of Jasper Sitwell, who is a S.H.I.E.L.D. operative who, you know, we learn turns traitor, he um, reels off a bunch of names of people who are on Hydra's list. I think he says Bruce Banner. I can't remember exactly. But he does say Stephen Strange, who, you know, goes on to become Doctor Strange. Um, and so it makes you wonder, was Senator Stern really working on behalf of Hydra to try and, you know, eliminate Tony, Tony Stark? And it kind of adds a little sinister twist to what he does at the end of Iron Man 2, where he's presenting the award. And, you know, he says, you deserve this. And then he pushes the pin into Tony's chest and says, oh, knowing how, you know, uh, uh, amazing how irritating a little prick can be. You know, um, I wonder if there was some subtle undertones there um, in terms of Hydra's uh, ultimate goals. But, you know, this is me just geek you know, uh, <laughs> um, just just 
coming up with my own, you know, my own thoughts because if if there's one thing that's clear, it's that Marvel didn't know everything they were planning to do going in. M- maybe they had the whole Hydra thing in in play from back then. I don't know, but I also know that they have a penchant for retconning. You know, you know, throwing things in there to try and make it fit. Case in point is the Peter Parker Easter egg that's in Iron Man Two, which was confirmed by Kevin Feige, the you know guy who kind of heads up the MCU um, and Tom Holland, the actor who plays Peter Parker, um, that in Iron Man 2, uh, in the climactic sequence with all the drones going crazy, there's a scene of the little kid with the Iron Man helmet on, who's facing up to a drone and raises his hand so it's a, it's been retconned into the MCU canon that that's actually Peter Parker as a kid, so I thought that was pretty cool, I'm not going to lie, I thought that was pretty cool that they've done that, and that they've actually confirmed it, I think is actually pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it for Iron Man 2. The only other question I had was actually about the closing song, um, you know, Highway to Hell by ACDC. I wonder if there's anything to be said about that, in terms of where the MCU is ultimately heading, because um, I have seen the trailer for um, Avengers Infinity War that was shown at Comic-Con. I have seen it. Um, And yeah, it does literally look like the MCU is on a highway to hell. So I do wonder if that was a slight foreshadow of, you know, what's eventually to come at this point in the MCU. Um, But yeah, those are all my thoughts about the first three movies, Iron Man 1, Iron Man 2, and The Incredible Hulk. Um, And after this, I will start watching Thor, which is one of my my favorite movies in the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. I love the movie Thor. Um, And I'll I'll, I'll tell you why when I I come to do that movie. Uh, Then Captain America, First Avenger, and... You know, my my other one of my other favorite movies in the MCU, the first Avengers movie. Um, so yeah. Until then, guys, uh, thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts, um, if you have anything you want to chime in about, call into the show, or you can comment directly on the feed if you're listening through Anchor. If you're listening via podcast, hey ho, how you doing? Thanks for listening. Um, and follow me on Meta Myth and Movies uh, at Meta Myth and Movies on Twitter. Um, Follow me there and uh, let me know your thoughts, guys. Otherwise, have a great day.